Hi there, and welcome to Military Histories, a podcast from York Army Museum. Each week we share an interview from the Royal Dragoon Guards audio archive. Throughout May and June we will be sharing interviews with World War II veterans. You can find more details about the Royal Dragoon Guards Oral History Project in the show notes. If you want to find out a bit more about our museum, there are links to our website and social media channels in the show notes too. In this week's interview you can hear Mr. Cecil Newton's detailed account of the preparation and training for the Normandy landings, including the role of amphibious tanks. He went on to write a book, A Soldier's Tale. Mr. Newton served with the 4th 7th Royal Dragoon Guards from 1942 to 1945. Thanks for listening, future episodes will drop every Friday. Uh, I am Lieutenant Colonel Retired Barry Port and today I'm interviewing Mr. Cecil Newton at his home in Oldbourne Village in Wiltshire and the date today is the 27th of August uh, 2013. Cecil, before we start the main interview I'd like to ask you for your full name, your date of birth and a very quick resume of your service in the regiment. Uh, My full name is Hugh Cecil Newton I was born on the 26th of December 1923. Um, I joined the uh, army in uh, the um, 25th of June 1942, listed at Holloway, and uh, served until the... um, 1945. Um, the effective date of discharge the 21st of August 1945. Uh, embodied service was three years, 17 days. Total service, yeah, 17 days. Um, I was a trooper and uh, I uh, joined the regiment, joined the, the uh, training corps of the RAC in uh, Bobbington, went to the primary training regiment and then went to the 58th training regiment and then from there joined the 47th Royal Dragoon Guards at Halesworth in Suffolk. Okay, thank you. Um, what led you, obviously we're talking in the war, um, but what led you to join the army? Were you called up or did you, is that something that you really wanted to do? Um, I volunteered. Um, I volunteered. The whole family were geared up to the war, uh, to serving in the war. Our house was an air raid, warden's post. My father was a local air raid warden. My sister enlisted in the uh, Women's Auxiliary Air Force and was based at Radlett and was part of a beam bending team at Radlett and that was the 
beams were sent over for the German aircraft, I believe from Mount Pinson, where the, the, the regiment uh, was involved in action, and the beams were sent over and the planes followed that and they bent the beam over the wash and places like that so they dropped that bomb into the water. And my oldest, my brother, who's older than me, uh, William Frederick Newton, was always keen on the army and uh, was in the school cadet corps, a drummer, and uh, he in volunteered for the RAC and joined the Westminster Dragoon Guards and then the uh, 5th Royal Tank Regiment and uh, so the whole family were um, 100% behind the war effort at that time and the house, I think I may have mentioned it was an area of Warden's Post so <laughs> it was all go for us. Yeah. Excellent. Now you mentioned beam bending. Yes. Um, which is something I, I have seen, heard of before. Yeah. Um, but quite in, fascinating right. in those days. I'm not quite sure how they actually managed to do that. Have you any information on... Yeah, well, the, the information I've got was that they use physiotherapists' um, equipment. They took it all out of the hospitals and they, um, these were very powerful, uh, I, don't, you know, I don't know the technical thing, but they're very, and a physio, and I mentioned it to a physio, and she was telling me that she had one of those post-war, and it infuriated everybody because it, uh, you know, all the district was, uh, um, uh, the televisions were, uh, uh, affected by the very powerful beams they gave out, but that's what my sister was doing. She, right. she was, a, uh, and the the unit was up in Radlett. That was excellent. So, so obviously, um, a lot of family involvement. Yes. Uh, in in the war effort, as you yeah. as you as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, but for you personally, um, where did your army career start? Where did you join up? I joined up, I volunteered at uh, Holloway uh, in North London, went to see uh, to a recruiting office there, the nearest recruiting office. Right. And once you'd, once you'd signed the dotted line, um, what happened after that? Uh, I think I got my uh, travel documents and... Uh, took the I arrived at Boynton um, I think I must have because I remember arriving at Boynton in the back of an open lorry and uh, talking to a young chap who became my friend um, so I must have where I got on the lorry goodness only knows <laughs> So on arrival um, at Bovington, I mean, what was Bovington like? I mean, I, I, 
I, I do know Bovington quite yeah. well, but but like, I'm assuming in those days there were lots of sort of nizzen huts or or, or well, wooden it huts. Was, there was a, a one the street on the, the one end on the on the upper side. Uh, I suppose the, I don't know if the north side, but uh, there was the primary training wing with the PTW, and at the bottom was the. 58th <coughs> Training Regiment, which is now where the the Tank Museum is, and then halfway up was the cinema, and uh, yeah, which that was very entertaining in itself. Not the films, but what the blokes had to say during the the performance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Yes. Um, but what was the training like? Um, was it was arduous? Well, at the, uh, well, at the P, at the primary training wing, it was um, all swear bashing, uh, and I can't remember anything else except the swear bashing, really, and the uh, the, the officer was uh, uh, from the Welsh Guards, I think, uh, and uh, I think. Cap Lieutenant or Captain Jones, and there was a, and uh, there was Corporal Dealey was the, was his aide de camp, and uh, all I can remember was um, walking around the square, and I mean, it was really hard stuff because uh, if you didn't do it correctly, you would have to hold the rifle above your head and run on the spot or run round the playground. It, was, it wasn't easy for a young uh, young person which barely left school, really. So how, how long did the, the, let's call it the basic training, the, the square bashing... I think it was about six months. Oh, six months, yeah. that's quite a long time. Yes, I think it was six months, somewhere around there. And then we went down to... Uh, um, the 58th Training Regiment, and the chap, uh, the Sergeant Major there, and it was equally formidable. He had, a, I remember, he had a blackberry with a leaping horse on it. I don't know what regiment that was. But, I mean, the discipline was very severe, very severe, and uh, you, you, if you ever, no one ever attempted to uh, do anything, you know, rebel against. And if they did, of course, it was jankers. And that was, um, you had to report in the evenings at certain intervals. The first time with your small pack, blank coat, and the second time in half. FMO, full marching order, and then late in the evening in full marching order. So um, it was a, a very, very putting off thing for anybody who decided to take a bit of time off. But we did take, uh, we did go AOWL, um, but I, I didn't do it, but there's some of the blokes went AWL. Oh yes, I did. <laughs> I went up to London. That's right to meet my brother, and the uh, the 
the uh, train came back into Bovington and uh, the, the rumour went that uh, the military police were on the platform and so uh, some started to jump out the train before it reached the station. I understand one bloke broke his leg and then it was a question of, of um, running like hell on the platform to get away from them. And the, I don't think they were very well trained, but of course we were experts at running. <laughs> we got out of it, left them gasping, and they smoked too much. <laughs> so you, uh, so you went absent without leave on just one occasion. Uh, for one, yeah, for a weekend, and we, I went, ab <laughs> I went absent without leave as well. I mean, it wasn't just me; it was the, a lot of people. I remember absent without leave uh, from Leap uh, when we went, uh, when we heard we were, the camp was going to be closed in May, I think, and we uh, put at night time at lights out, we put uh, uh, stuffed the beds to look like bodies. I mean, the NCOs were with us. Uh, uh, Corporal, you know, tank commander was one of us, and uh, we walked practically the whole way to from Leap to Southampton to catch the train, and then we got a lift at the end with an American jeep, but uh, and then we came back without any problem at all. And of course, the the Manchester regiment then uh, shot the um, shot the camp and guarded it, wouldn't let anybody out, wouldn't let anybody in. If you went to the dentist, you'd have to go under escort. It's very well done. Yes. Uh, and there was very, you know, it was all excellently carried out with, uh, uh, with a briefing in tents <coughs> in the middle of the belt, you know, where the bell tents were at leap. It was... You thoroughly, but you didn't know where you were going. That's the main thing. Right. You didn't know where you were going, and of course, I've arranged for a, a plaque to be put up at Leap uh, in memory of them leaving there, the regiment leaving there on the third of June. They left there on the third of June to go because of the bad weather, and. Uh, I mean, the landing, as you know, was not till the sixth of June. Right. Okay. Mm. Going going back to um, to to the Bovington side of it. Yeah. Um, you'd <coughs> complete obviously completed your basic training, and I, I'm assuming yeah. that you you stayed in Bovington to then do your trade training on the tanks. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. What, what was the which vehicles did you use, and what was the training? Well, like? the uh, the training at Bovington was. In Lloyd's carriers uh, and a um, Churchill tanks, if I remember rightly. Yes, it would be a Churchill tanks, and with uh, I think a tank, an A30, I think something like that, which is very much like a Covenant or yeah. And we travel on the. Uh, and we'd be exercising uh, on the, uh, you know, the extensive uh, heathland and very, very muddy heathland around Bovington. Yes. Right. 
And how, how did they break you down? Did they did they say you're all going to drive, or some of you are going to be gunners, radio operators? Uh, I think we drove and we went on the range down at Lulworth to fire. Um, it was it wasn't set that you'd all be drivers or you'd all be gunners or wireless operators then at Boynton. I think they gave you a general uh, crew uh, uh, training and uh, uh, with uh, the different aspects of it. It was, it was good, uh, no question about it. It was uh, very well conducted again. What was the, um, sometimes it's difficult, obviously for people like myself who haven't lived through the yeah, four years, yeah. but, but what was the atmosphere in the country in 1942? Well, they were different people. Uh, a 20-year-old was a different species of person. Very naive, um, did as they're told, uh, and... Uh, very sort of uh, unaware of uh, world events or anything like that. Um, and of course they were very nice indeed, very nice, uh, simple, not simple in mentally, but with simple outlook on life. You, you did what you were told and so uh, you got on with it. Goodness knows what would happen now. Um, because they were really very malleable uh, in what they wanted to do. And of course, they were very patriotic too. Mm. Uh, they realised the uh, extent of the problem and uh, they were quite willing to do what they had to do. I mean, was it at that particular time when you were going through your training, was the threat of um, invasion? still there or had that sort of moved on from after the Battle uh, of Britain? The Second Front, as it was called, was always in the background. Uh, you couldn't get away from it. And uh, it was always being talked about, the papers, the, the Russians were demanding it. Um, so it was hovering over you. But it didn't worry particularly. Nothing worried me really. <laughs> All I was worried about was going to the naffy, but um, <laughs> if I could get there. So uh, nothing really worried me, um, and I don't think it worried the majority of young boys. They were they were only boys, very nice boys too. Yeah. Whilst you're in training. Did were there any restrictions on we 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 hear a lot of obviously about rationing um, du, about rationing of food during the war did that affect the training camps did you get a proper uh, yes, sort of three meals food, a day the, the, the food was uh, fine uh, that was served in the in our uh, ORs mess it was uh, couldn't afford it um it must have been a bit dodgy at times because I remember at Christmas they passed a berry round for the cooks and I was about on the last table and there was just a bullet in it. <laughs> a bullet? <laughs> yeah, a bullet. Yes, yes. A live round. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes I've known some chefs uh, in my time that um, 
probably could have deserved a yeah, uh, bullet, yes. But I, I don't <laughs> think they deserved it because no, the, no. I could never remember not eating the meal. I thought, yeah. it was, you know, but then again, I didn't think very much about it. Yeah. So once the training was complete, yeah. um, at what stage? Did, I mean, did, were you asked which regiment you'd like to join? Yes, I was right. given. They were given a list of uh, about six or something like that, and uh, I just. Pick the four seventh. Was there any particular reason? No, none at, at all. all. There was no, no sort of family all. link or friends. No, no, or... no, no. Okay, so having made that um, decision to join the regiment, the, the, yeah. the four seventh Royal Green Guards, um, where, where did you join the regiment? At Halesworth in Suffolk. Right. Yes, they'd been up at Keithley and they moved down to Halesworth. Yeah. And. Are there any sort of memories that stick out when, uh, when you first arrived at the the Barrett Gates? Uh, how are you? How are you greeted? Were you, did you still feel like I a recruit? Ca I or? can't remember that. I'm afraid right. it was um, the accommodation was Nissen huts. I can't remember arriving. Um, right. But, uh, we were warning the, the whole the, the crews were formed, and uh, I was in a. In Nissen Hut were the crew, right, and two or three crew. The the, the, the organisation of the regiment. I take it there was different squadrons. Um, That's right. Which which squadron were you? B in B squadron. B right. squadron. Yeah. Okay. Um, any memories of some of the personalities uh, within the squadron, the squadron leader or the sergeant major at that time? Yeah. Uh, well, I can't remember the at that time. But I remember our own squadron leader, uh, you know, from the time we were in Normandy, was uh, Steve, Stephen Jenkins, and uh, but that's the only name I really remember. Uh, I remember the uh, the. The adjutant to look at him, but I don't remember his name. Right. But I should do. And uh, the uh, sergeant major was Rattenbury, uh, much disliked by all and sundry. <laughs> much disliked. Um, <laughs> and when the poor chap was captured, it was. I've never seen anything, the reaction like it. it was berries in the air, poor chap, and he was doing his job. <laughs> but he was, everybody was scared stiff of him. Yeah, poor bloke, yeah. Yeah, poor bloke, yeah. Um, so there, there you were in the regiment. Uh, obviously, this is still 1942. Yes. Uh, and obviously, a little while yet before... Um, yeah, I, yes, day, I, I don't know whether they, uh, they were in command in 1942. No. I can't really tell you but they were in I remember from 44. So what what, what, did, what was the sort of daily routine in, in whilst you were with the regiment um, what what vehicles did you have and oh um, well of course we, we started off with Valentine's and uh, I can't honestly remember it, uh, whether we took them out or not I don't know but uh, there was gunnery practice uh, at uh, off the coast, 
And uh, one thing I do recall is that we never trained with infantry. And uh, that was, I think, a great mistake. I can't remember actually training with an infantry in the method of attack. And I can't honestly remember any, it may have been taught, I don't know, but I can't remember any tank strategy either. There were so many things that had to be learnt over in Normandy. It was quite extraordinary how to then operate in a built-up area, how to get across open ground, if there was anything you possibly could do. I expect it was all sorted out with the officers. I don't know the NCOs, but there you are. Probably I wasn't observant. Um, so there's a lot of... The it was just a question mm. in action of going forward, that's all, as I could see. Um, you know, getting the, the tanks forward and giving covering fire for the infantry. <coughs> I don't think there was any facility on the tank for infantry to contact the commander. Right. Um, although I can see Captain Richards now, DSO, uh, running with the infantry and leaping on the tanks to give them instructions. What a man! Nice what place. a man! Yeah. What was the um, what was the Valentine tank like? I mean, how, how was it viewed by the crews? Was it a reliable vehicle or? It was much sought after by the Russians peculiarly, and we exported a lot, but uh, it was very very slow and, uh, of course, a completely inadequate two-pounder gun on it. To drive it was extremely difficult for a, a puny youth, and uh, I had to, to push the... St you pull the sticks back over a cam, and then you had to, to neutralise it. You had to push the sticks back over the cam again. And the only way I could do that was to, in that very confined space, was to sit back in the seat and push it back with my foot. And by that time, the tank was across the other side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was, what he had was a very low profile, of course, and uh, it was built to look like a tank, you know, uh, and it was used in, as a, a duplex drive tank eventually with one propeller and then of course the uh, it became a um, the Shermans were turned into duplex they were adapted to it so all, all the time in, in, in from 42 to 44 when you were preparing yeah. obviously a lot of preparation yeah. for yeah you probably didn't know but the forthcoming invasion yes. um, the, you had Valentines all the time. Did you? When did you? Did you get any Sherman tanks before the? Well, uh, I got a. Uh, the Sanders did a critic on my book, and then it they did so. It was fine, you know, except there were some technical things, and then I realised that 
we had a Sherman tank uh, as a, for a short time with the whirlwind engine before we got the DD tank and we didn't have a DD Sherman I'm sure I'm right in this until leap when just before D-Day uh, when they must have driven them down off uh, flat trucks and driven them down uh, along the concrete road to um, that was used for building Mulberry Harbour and then along the hards of the beach to a copse below the uh, where we were camped and then we serviced them there and wrapped them and, and uh, did all that business. So, so the whole regiment had Shermans just prior to the... I'm sure of that, yes, yeah. but I'm sure that they did have Shermans because I remember doing anti-mine work with it and that was to stop the Sherman in a village, get out of it and um, one chap would run forward and put a petrol tin in the road ahead and then we were get a hawser and attach it to the petrol tin <laughs> and then tow the tin down the road backwards. People watching from the built-up area would think we were absolutely crazy and I thought we, we realised we were crazy. Did that you, was the kind of training we did. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. Um, I mean, so you, you mentioned unwrapping the, the Sherman, obviously brand new Sherman tanks. Um, did, did you get any time to train on them, to fire with ranges? With, range with the DDs? Mm. Um, don't think so. I can't remember, but I'm sure. <coughs> excuse me. I'm sure we didn't. Uh, we uh, we did all our training on the Valentine. So really, well, this is this is quite interesting because Pardon? it's quite an interesting point because obviously when you when you eventually uh, moved into Normandy, yes, did did you feel at any time that you weren't properly trained on the vehicle that you were about to fight in? Well, we knew what it was like. We'd been very, you know we'd we'd been training up in the north at Tain. Whether we had them at Tain, I don't know. Uh, I might be wrong on that. We mm. may have had them at Tain, um, but no, no, we had the. I, all I can remember is having the DD tank Sherman delivered to us at Leap. I'm sure we didn't have one before that. We had Valentine's, and of course, it was. Studland, the sixth Valentine's tank, and that was on the 4th of April. And of course, so it wasn't much time from the 4th of April, 44, to when we went on this, you know, there was April, May. So I'm sure we didn't have uh, Sherman tanks because uh, it would have left such a short time from when we the camp was closed, I think about the 29th of May or something. Um, so it, 
uh, it, I'm sure we didn't have DD tanks before. Right. Um, we took delivery of them at Leap. Right. So just for the people listening on the interview in the future, the, the, um, the DD was the duplex drive yes. tank. Um, and I take it they were Valentine tanks that were duplex drive. That's right. propeller on. One propeller. The right. Sherman had two. Ah, right. Okay. Um, now, the, the training for that, um, on the, even with the Valentine direct duplex drive yes. tanks, I mean, how, how did that training go? It's well, quite scary, it, wasn't it? It was uh, from Cowshot. Uh, the Valentine had a mast on it with port starboard lights. And we'd go out at night, sailing along the Solent. Um, we had uh, naval waterproof clothes, heavy, and uh, a Davis escape apparatus, which was eventually uh, uh, withdrawn, and uh, a tank escape apparatus, which was a smaller version, amphibious tank ATVA. Uh, were issued in lieu of because there was difficulty in getting in and out of the turret with a with a uh, uh, with a Davis escape apparatus, and we trained up at Tain in Scotland, um, and uh, I can't quite remember, but I think that was mainly uh, in the Solent and up in uh, on on Tain in Scotland. Right. So there's a lot of movement then. Obviously, I mean, that's way, way up north, up in yes, Tain. And, yes, uh, And then obviously the cow shot the opposite end of the, yes, right. the island. Yeah, yes. um, but to go back to the, the, the escape apparatus, what, what was the Davison escape apparatus? What did it consist of? It consisted of, it was submarine uh, apparatus, and it consisted of a... Um, of, uh, sort of a pouch on the front uh, and a, a mask and a tube and then it had an air bottle inside and I believe you, I never used it, but you broke the thing and released the air into the, uh, into the, this bag and you breathed this, the air in it. Oh, right, right. Did, did you actually, I'm getting a, a picture now of this tank driving along the seabed with a, with a mask up. Is that, is no, that it didn't drive along the sea, but it, it floated. floated. Sorry, yeah. Floated, yeah. Well, suppose hopefully floated. Yeah, yeah. Right. But, the, but hopefully floated. <laughs> Whether anybody could swim in it or not was never asked. But um, uh, no, it was. Uh, of course, the Sherman didn't have a mast, uh, but the, there was a facility for the Valentine uh, to have a mast. Incredible. Yeah. Um, so all this this training was was going on. Um, yeah. Obviously, everything now was was looking towards an invasion of Normandy. Yes. So obviously, that's where the duplex yeah. drive yeah. Um, yeah. concept came in. Yeah. Um, but uh, were there any incidents with the uh, the training? I, I believe there were obviously some accidents. Well, um, there was the uh, see B and C were DD squadrons. And AHQ were wading squadrons, and the reason for that was that A squadron had a few Firefly tanks, 
and the the gun was too long for the screen. Ah, so right. they were waiting, and they, they landed on D-Day an hour after we did. Uh, and during an ex, during a, a preliminary or early training at Fritton, I think it was, and I never went there, but uh, one of the A squadron tanks got the, they had a chute at the back for air, uh, and that was knocked off and the driver was drowned oh. and then the other incident which was a, a bit of a major one was at uh, Studland of course when they were launched and bad weather suddenly blew, blew up and uh, six tanks sank and six were drowned and of course, again, I organised uh, a plaque down there to commemorate it. Yes, it was a yes. national trust. Right. How far were these tanks expected to either wade or swim forward? Not very far. Um, I wouldn't really know the yards, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't like to say how far. Right. As short as possible. Surely, as short as possible. <laughs> of course, at D-Day, we didn't swim in. Right. Cecil, what were your memories of the final weeks of preparation prior to D-Day? Well, we... The, the BNC squadron um, were bivouacked at Leap. Um, the um, hill that they erected these bell tents is now covered in trees, but at that time there was a field there and they put these rows of uh, bell tents there and uh, the tanks were delivered there at, down at the bottom of the hill, not a very big hill, and uh, the uh, Naffy and administrative place were in in um, huts in the in 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 the wood behind, and uh, what well, was occupied nearly the whole time with uh, unpacking the um, uh, tanks, uh, clearing the the. Um, oil-proof paper off guns and things like that and getting them ready for action. And uh, there was no training done, of course, and this would have been sometime during May, back end of April, May, I should think. And, um, but there's not much time to uh, do anything else but get the tanks ready. Right. and uh, there were naffy trips and then just before D-Day the camp was closed as I said before uh, with the Manchester Regiment uh, guarding it and then nearer D-Day they put a marquee up uh, on that open area and that was guarded and then they had uh, maps and uh, 
written instructions of what was going to happen on D-Day, but they didn't give the actual location, of course. All very well done. And uh, then on the 3rd of June, on a very bright sunny day, the squadron sergeant major with his clipboard on his arm marshaled us onto tanks, onto LCTs, landing craft tanks. And of course, by the evening, the weather had become absolutely frightful. And uh, as you know, it was delayed a day. And uh, then we went through extremely rough weather, getting very, very sick to uh, the beaches. Did you did you know um, you, you mentioned the maps, um, and the, did you have an idea of the, the basic plan once once you'd cleared or hopefully cleared the beach? Yes, I had a I had a once we cleared the beach, I uh, had the idea in my mind that we would that would be our job done and we'd come back home, right. and. Uh, <laughs> Poor old John, who was my, you know, close friend, he said to me, I think I mentioned it in the book, he said to me, you know, I don't think I'm going to come back. And I, instead of ribbing him about it, I said, you know, um, you'll be all right, John. I said, uh, you will, uh, you know, after we've done our job, we'll be back home. But it didn't turn out like that, so I... I did think that we had a special mission to capture a blockhouse, which was the, the, the troop, I had that mission, and I thought that uh, he was in the troop leader's tank, and I thought uh, that was a one-off mission, and that whatever the, else the regiment did or, or didn't do, um, we'd be, after we'd completed our task, we'd be back home like any other mission. And that was, that mission was fully explained in the briefing. And uh, although they couldn't determine the, what the blockhouse was, they knew it was a concrete structure, but because Frogman had been on the beach to test the sand and anything, and they had looked at the night time and looked at this structure, and they had found that it didn't have an aperture in the front for a, or a gun port in the front. But of course, it didn't have a gun port in the front. It was firing on fillet down the beach and traversing rear and then firing down the other side so it couldn't fire forward. Yeah. What about your memories of um, the journey across? Well, it was uh, my memory of the journey across was that it was extremely rough and it was extremely, you know, uh, unsettling for even standing up when you landed on dry land because the, the the motion of those couple of days, whatever it was, was such that uh, 
you know, the, the, it was something that the, that the body couldn't get used to. Sure. Um, how, long, how long were you actually at sea? Well, we sailed on the 3rd, and then it was the 4th, and the 5th, and then on the 6th, of course, we arrived off the coast of France, first thing, and it was there that uh, we were absolutely shattered, actually, this I was, with the, with the being so ill. The only person who wasn't ill was the sergeant, Sergeant Fry. Um, and he came round in the morning, and he said, I remember that so well. Came round and said, he said, we'll be off soon, he said, have a cup of tea or something. And so this chap, I didn't know who it was, but Tom Rennox, there was a big field cooker in the front. And the next thing I saw was this plume of flames going up into the grey early morning sky and uh, then the, that was very nice that was Lumiere and then there was the son that was the sound added by the the captain of the ship who said he's going to shoot the bloke if he didn't put it out <laughs> and I, I was in the uh, coach once on one of these pilgrimages with them um, and uh, sitting across the aisle was Sergeant Rudd, an awfully nice chap. And uh, I was telling him about this, and a little voice piped up the behind of the seat behind him. It was from Tom saying, I lit the cook. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the time came to push off. They, were, they decided not to swim in, and they told us that, and then the ramp went down, and uh, the um, tank rumbled down the ramps into, into action. On the LCT, um, was your whole troop on the LCT? No. Um, the troop leader's tank was in another LCT. The, obviously, thinking about the troop sergeant's tank must have been on our LCT. Um, his three tanks, and our troop corporal, our three tanks. Right. So three three tanks in your troop? Yeah, three yeah. tanks in yeah. a troop. But then, of course, later on, the Firefly was delivered, and there were four tanks. Right. And the Firefly being the one with the bigger gun? Yeah, they were the same, with, the, with the big gun. The, we had 75 millimeter. Right. They had the bigger gun. As, as you were coming into the beach, I got, I got, my, my yeah. mind, my mind yeah. is full yeah. of black yeah. and white footage yeah. of yeah. things happening. What was going on around you? Was it massive, intensive fire well, going on? Well, uh, what I saw, of course, um, we were all getting ready, getting ourselves ready to, for the big push. And what I did see, of course, was a... a a rocket landing craft equipped with rockets and that was not far away practically alongside and it let the salvo of rockets off at the beach but that was a good start um, but of course there was nothing in front of us uh, infantry we were five minutes before the main landing so there was nothing in front of us and all I could see 
was the grey strip of coastline uh, with the grey hills behind, low hills behind, and uh, and the grey choppy sea, but it calmed down a bit by D-Day. Yeah. Was, was there any fire coming from the Germans at this stage? I didn't notice anything. No. I didn't notice anything. There must have been, actually, but I didn't know. But what was our great worry, or the driver's great worry, were the hedgehogs, uh, which were these uh, tripods with a, um, a 75 millimeter shell on the top, or a landmine uh, position. You had to steer between those. Right, right. So the ramp goes down. Yeah. Um, what what crew position were you in at the time? Hmm? Where were you on the tank? Were you? I was the operator. Right. I was the gunner operator. So we had a lot on our plate to sort out before we got on, right. uh, before we went down that ramp. You know. Uh, well, the... what, what were your thoughts, your personal thoughts, as you as the tank rumbled down the ramp into the? Oh, on, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, were you were you apprehensive, or were you well, just happy appreh- to get off? Possibly, your- I was a bit apprehensive, but that's all. Um, I can't remember really, but I can't remember me having any emotional problems going down it right. at all. And that was throughout the throughout the six months I was in action. Apprehensive. Where is the 88 coming through the turret? Will it be coming on my side or the gunner's side? Um, I didn't didn't worry too much about it because I was young and I hadn't got much of a... uh, uh, You know, I didn't think too much, I suppose. Right. So going back to the beach, so you're now... I'm not sure how much you could see from your crew. Very little. Yeah. Very little, but I uh, could see the blockhouse, of course. <clears throat> the troop leader had landed, and he and the troop sergeant went on the left. Why the troop leader wasn't in the same... LCT, God only knows. And then we, we went on the right uh, and uh, fired at the thing, went up on the right, and the... F- Blockhouse was quite battered with there was HMS Belfast firing out to sea, and HMS Orion, or one or two of them, I don't know, but it didn't. It dented a little bit, and then we went up on the right, and of course there's the photograph of the gun pointing straight at us. But luckily, in one respect, we went down a a shell hole, obviously from one of the battleships uh, just in front of the blockhouse and of course the, the, to fire we had the screen down so we um, sank in the hole up to the deck and uh, troops sergeant tried to tow us out but it was absolutely hopeless and so we had to abandon the tank and uh, the troop leader and the troop sergeant, in accordance with instructions, belted off into the 
in, 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 into up the road and getting off out out of the off the beach because the instructions were to get off the beaches as quickly as possible. So that's what happened as far as that. But the um, the crew came out in the front, about six of the gunnery crew, German, with a boss man wearing a peaked hat and a white shirt, and then there's crew each side of him. And uh, that was the blockhouse captured. Were there uh, infantry on the beach with you? I... At that time, I can't recall seeing them, but they must have been because after we'd captured the blockhouse, I was very surprised because the stretcher bearers during the morning were collecting the dead, both German and British, and there were quite a, you know, a fair number that were going around the stretchers and picking up the bodies, and then they had a tarpaulin and they'd pop a body under the tarpaulin and put, push the sheet over them. So I was quite surprised at that, but I wasn't observing too much. I was very unobservant. But what the noise was quite loud because what with the, the, the main noise was the LCTs bumping against the hedgehogs and uh, uh, exploding the mines and the, as they came in, um, but my th my drill was, if anything looked nasty, look away now. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and I wasn't too interested in what was happening around me, but I was interested in having a cup of tea, and we did have a cup of tea. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, so <laughs> the 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 driver and the co-driver went in because it was dry inside. You see, the Sherman, and went in to get our kit. And uh, when they went in there, there was a Canadian in there taking out the radio set. Out of your tank. Yeah. Uh, quite extraordinary. So I was told. And uh, so they got the whole of the stuff ashore with a cooker, and we had a brew up. And then I was sitting on a bedroll, I think, somewhere on the beach, and the the uh, head of me was the uh, beach master in his naval uniform, trying to stepping amongst the the packing casing cases, looking completely perplexed of what to do next. And uh, two of the Green Howard infantry came, and one of them sat on the sand at my feet, and uh, with a small pack, they had no guns or anything like that, and uh, opened a small pack, and uh, took off his boots, took off his wet socks, took out a dry pair of socks out of his small pack and put those on, carefully rolled up his wet socks and put them back in the in the small pack, took out a bottle of whiskey, had a slug of that, put the whiskey back, put his boots on, full, 
as far as the small pack, but I did notice that on the flap inside was Captain Richards. And so I said, does your captain know that you're helping himself to your socks and, the, and his whiskey? Oh, yes, he wouldn't mind. And, of course, I was talking to uh, uh, Brown, what was his name, Adam Brown, who's his niece has just emailed me today. And he happened to mention, of course, that his tank commander was Captain Richards. So they pinched that. And there's a photograph of the two greenhouses and two of our crew standing in front of the blockhouse, which is in the book. And uh, I think they decided that uh, they weren't going to, if, they, if there was going to be a war, and they didn't want to take part. And that's what happened. And then, of course, uh, we... I had this bike, which I went for a ride in the afternoon, because it was very quiet in the afternoon on D-Day, um, along the beach. Uh, one of the folding bikes, cycle troops had uh, come ashore, and the first thing they did was to chuck their bikes in a heap. So I purloined one, and that's in the photograph, and went for a cycle, a short cycle, along the sand, because I've always been a keen cyclist. And then uh, Corporal, Corporal Bennett said, uh, I've had my orders now to march, so I'll go down to Bershamer to pick up transport. And uh, so we had to take like all our kit now so I could take the bike. And the miserable devil said no. So I had to... Uh, carry my kit and everything down to Versamere and there was the transport waiting on the centre line and uh, one of the reserve crew, John Busbridge, was there sitting having a cup of tea again and behind him was a German officer dead in a naval hammock and uh, I said, what's he doing here? And he said he he was being taken on board ship to be taken back to England and he'd been badly wounded. And he died. And then they said to me, can you go and get rid of him somehow? So you know, hand him over to somebody. So that's what I got. I got the task of trying to get rid of him somewhere. And then we went to... Uh, a meadow behind, uh, drove behind Versailles to a meadow, and uh, I just lay on the ground there, with a um, watching the tracer bullets going up from the beach, and put my helmet over my head and had a damn good night's sleep. Yeah. Wait, wait, just going back to the beach, I'm actually fascinated by the fact you went for a bicycle ride along the beach yes um what was when you were on the obviously your tank was 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 bogged in and the rest of the troop had moved forward um what was what was happening on the beach I, i've got a picture of the beach being completely full of vehicles and equipment but it wasn't actually i can't remember it there was a frail tank beating the hell out of a minefield at the back um I can't remember, and I don't, and I think I'm right 
uh, that part of Gold Beach was deserted. Oh, okay. the, the instant that I arrived, that, that I remember so right, so uh, so much, is those jolly jack tars. They didn't wear any. They didn't wear their collars because of the light stripes. See. And I looked round. I was having my cup of tea, and I looked round, and there was there was a, a half buried German in a trench because there were trenches behind the blockhouse to the right, and then there was a underground entrance going down near the trenches, and half buried in the trench was a a German. Uh, whether he was a dead or alive, I don't know. But uh, these sailors were throwing lumps of, lumps of the demolished uh, concrete blocks, bits at this at this poor German. So I uh, I went up to the bloke nearest to me and uh, grabbed him by the arm and told him to stop it. And then he, he, he glanced at my shoulders to see if I had rank. And when he saw I hadn't got rank, he said, uh, he, he pushed me away and said, they killed our mates. I said, there was no reason for you to do that. And then the stretcher bearers came and took him away, whether he was wounded or dead, I don't know. I hope he was dead in a way because it must have been awful, you know, right. having these blokes throwing. Uh, but, but of course, the uh, I suppose the landing crafts were subject to these hedgehogs going off and would have uh, damaged them, and all they could have been shot. But it's all very hazy about the. I do remember the two lines of bodies. I do remember that it was very deserted. It was like. Bogner, and then Nick, when we eventually found an ex-German billet in Bersemer with a note on the table, we will return. Uh, we went back to help on the beach, and it was completely, next day or the day after, it was completely transformed. There were, the beach was absolutely packed with, uh, and burrows, you know, where the troops were for shelter were in the burrows, and piles of equipment, and, you know, the place was absolutely uh, crowded. But that was about a day, two days after. Two afterwards. days after, yeah. yeah. How, how did you eventually get back to your, your, your troop? Well, that was quite extraordinary, really. Um, Obviously, you must realise I was right at the bottom of the heap and didn't know very much about anything. Uh, but we rejoined... I don't know where we picked up a new diesel tank, Sherman, but uh, it must have been... It must have been... You see, the the the, um, the two tanks of the uh, 
the two truths. The, uh, sorry, let's get it right. The uh, troop sergeant's tank and the troop leader's tank and our tank, the three tanks and the troop. We lost ours and the troop leader and the troop sergeant went to interaction on Cristo on the 11th of June. And of course both tanks were hit and destroyed like the rest of the squadron. Seven were, uh, nine went in DD tanks and seven were hit. And uh, there was um, one survived and another one was just uh, 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 put out of action, but they, the, the good tank towed it back. And uh, so that was on the 11th. And of course we went into, we had a new tank, a new Sherman. We joined up with them and they had new Shermans, believe it or not, on the 13th of June. After going through, of course, the the troop leader, Apps, was wounded in the hand and never came back uh, until 1945 um, to the troop. I'd left it by then, and I think it was peacetime. But we went to action on the with the the two troops, the troop leaders of the troops, sergeants on the 14th of June. But of course, there were two short who had been wounded, so there were only three in the troop sergeant's tanks. Troop sergeant, the reserve John Busbridge, and Fred Hall, the driver. Right, right. So, so the, the there must have been a massive logistical effort to get all these spare tanks. Yes. Coming forward. Yes, I mean, there was no problem at all with. Uh, with the spare tanks coming up, I mean, they could provide three new Sherman tanks without any problem at all. Right. So, having rejoined your your troop, obviously there've been a lot of action. So, yeah. the, as you say, the troop leader had yeah. gone. Um, there was a new second lieutenant troop leader. Right. So you formed up. Re reformed your troop with your yes. new tanks and yeah, new the three troop leader. the three tanks um the troop sergeant was still there i believe yes yeah um and then w what was your next action well that was on the 14th of june at verrieres uh langere and verrieres right when the, the troop sergeants and the troop leaders tank were destroyed and uh, nine people killed. Seven, no, five. Five in the troop leader's tank and two, seven, that's right, seven were killed. Right. Now, bearing in mind what you were saying earlier that you thought that your, your part in this was to take out the blockhouse yeah. and then you'd be going home. Yeah. <laughs> At what stage did you realize that actually well, very, soon, <laughs> very soon, very <laughs> soon. You weren't going anywhere. <laughs> going, I wasn't going home. <laughs> because we, uh, um, you know, I, I tweaked then that, you know, going to Bersamere, that 
were in for inland pleasure. Funnily enough, the tank was called, it had painted on the side of it, Cook's Tour. Didn't get far, did it? <laughs> no. Well, actually, you've, you've, you've talked about your um, back together, the troop. You've now pushed south. Um, you had your action at uh, Jerks. Yeah. Um, and then th that was obviously pushing due south from, from the beach. That's right. Uh, and then, obviously, there was that swing... Um, to the east. To the east. The okay. Great Swan. Ah, right, OK. The Great Swan. And uh, we just motored until we got to the Seine, to Vernon. And uh, by the time we'd got there, they'd put a Bailey Bridge across, but before, of course, they were rafting them across. And then there was a steep slope at the other side, on the east bank of the Seine, with a very cliff-like thing. And we went up that. I remember we were the commander was our Lieutenant Burgess. Um, I don't know why, where the corporal had gone. And uh, we got onto a plateau at the top and chased a, a, a horse and cart. And the Germans spilled out the back and we shot at them. And then we eventually went to uh, Belgium. And uh, we went, we crossed the Albert Canal and uh, our battery, the charging, the Amita or whatever it was, had packed up. And uh, so we were delayed while we were, that was being fixed. And then we, the troop eventually went into, uh, attacked Oostham and uh, we were on the, uh, down the road, the, uh, one of the tanks was parked by a building and the troop leader's tank Lieutenant Burgess was behind and uh, our troop corporal was a second lieutenant and uh, he'd been wounded in the bottom at Otto and he was, I could honestly say he was an absolute coward, and he was responsible for the death of Trooper Hill and Trooper Moffat. At the slightest bit of trouble, he'd jump out of the tank, and the gunner, Ken Knowles, would have dragged him back in. Quite disgusting. Funnily enough, his son has been in contact with him. I don't know what I'd, I was very careful what I said to him. But I sent him letters that Ken had written to me about it. And, uh, and that tank on the left with Hill and Moffat in it, the sergeant very bravely got out to capture a couple of paras in front of the And he was surrounded by uh, very many more paras 
and he surrendered. And uh, when he was surrendering, a para crept up the back of the Sherman at Moffat and Hill and threw a potato, push, shot them and put a potato masher in the, uh, in, in the tank. And of course, killed, well, killed Moffat, but Hill was dying in a tank. And uh, the driver, Tony Walton, was lying by the tank. He got out, he was slightly wounded in the hand, and he could hear Hill in the tank um, shouting for help. And of course, uh, then the troop leader came along wanted to know what came on foot, which was quite, because the, the Germans were in the ward and Tony Walton said they were coming with Panzerfaust at us. And he came up and uh, told the, uh, the commander of our tank to get the hell out of it. Well, what happened, of course, in a panic, he'd reversed the driver into trees and then got stuck. And so, and the, the uh, tank, the German um, self-propelled gun that was just round the corner fired at us and missed us by a fag packet. And then, uh, so we risked it and got out. And uh, Tony Welton was lying on the ground by the tank, waving us out. We went back into a a meadow and uh, the troop leaders tank and ours just uh, harboured up at night and we lay underneath it with our sten guns but nothing happened. The, f the, the German officer who was involved in Ouston because we put a plaque up at Ouston and the German officer which was um, who'd fired at our tank was uh, at the reunion okay. at, the, at, the, at the at the dedication of the thing. Well, yeah. He was a a very insignificant-looking bloke. Right. Mm. I suppose I mean, you you mentioned much earlier yeah, that. During the training, there was there was no training with the infantry. So, so as you were pushing forward and you got caught up with these paras, yeah. um, who were obviously an isolated detachment, I'm assuming. Yes, um, there was no infantry. You had no infantry with you no, to sort no, them out. No. Yeah. If there were, they weren't near us. Right. There must have been infantry. I think it was the 12th KRC. I always had the impression it was controlled chaos. It must have been, yes, yeah. There's been much written about the Bocage sort of countryside, yes. and that that must was was that put a factor in this that you didn't you couldn't really see your tanks all the time, and what was happening on the left and what was happening on the right. Well, I didn't notice the Bocage, really. Mm. Um, there's no Bocage round Verrier. There's no Bocage round Tilly. Uh, it must have been a, just uh, just south of Vesumer. There's a little sort of 
bit of wood there, etc., which sort of looks as though it could be bocage, but uh, I didn't. Uh, the deep lanes and the high banks, can't remember them. Right. But right. that's my memory. Okay. Um, I mean, that was, that was an awful incident hmm? with the troop. What, how, how did the troop hold together when, when you lost people like that in that tragic yes. incident? I mean, how, how, what was the effect on the troop? Did it make you stronger? There was a, a sort of... Uh, I never came... never heard anybody... Uh, having a defeatist attitude towards it. How they felt inside, goodness only knows. But in a way, I, although when it did happen, you couldn't do anything about it. And after very air, I remember after that day when all my mates were killed, I uh, just lay on the ground and and had a good night's sleep. I don't know whether, but I, I think I must have been very hardened then. Yes, yeah. Very hardened. So, so the push, the push went on. Yeah. Um, and again, having lost that crew, yeah, was it a case of receiving yet another replacement crew? Yes, uh, the replacement crews were very, very quick, but of course they were running out eventually of tank crews. Mm. But I didn't know at the time that. They could get the equipment, but they couldn't get the men. Right. Oh dear. I take it that's why you ended up as a, with a, a young officer as a troop corporal at that stage. Yes. As you yes, mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, because you were running out of. Yeah, we had a, eventually we had a, this second lieutenant, who was the troop corporal. Um, we had the second lieutenant who was the troop officer, and he was killed very early, of course. And then we had uh, a Lieutenant Burgess. Um, we had, after Bennett, um, solid peeing blood, and uh, was t he had some problems. And he went back, and we had another, we had this dreadful second Lieutenant, and then he was t luckily he realised what a what a failure he was, and they took him, put him in transport, and uh, we had a elderly corporal then uh, as a replacement. Um, but he was too old actually. Thirties, thirty-one, thirty-two. You had to be young. Uh, right. Yeah. How um, were you close to the other troops in the squadron? Did you see a lot of them um, during? Not. We were the push very uh, isolated mm. all through our training into troops, and it was a. Um, we didn't mix very much. Actually, didn't know other. We knew I knew vaguely other people in other troops, 
but uh, it was very much a family affair. Right, right. The, sort of the push forward then, um, onwards to Lille. Lille. Um, yeah. Um, how did that go? I think before the main attack, three of us went, the three tanks and the troop. Or was it the two? I can't remember. Went to do a reconnaissance of Lille, and the um, now we must have had replacement tanks for that because one went, or was it two? I can't remember. But uh, at least two tanks. That's all went in to do a recce of Leo and we had the dreadful corporal and then uh, we uh, went down the wrong road and uh, then they said it'd be all right and we landed up at the Place de la Republique and we were absolutely mobbed uh, by the, the, the whole place was full of people and the resistance were on the tank firing their guns in the air and uh, the uh, troop corporal disappeared where he went to I don't know and uh, whether he went to the get instructions from the other tank I don't know I think he was completely bomb happy and uh, I'm and uh, poor old Ken, the gunner, went bomb happy. And uh, when we, we went into a large, you know, to a field to spend the night, and poor old Ken wouldn't get out of the tank, he became tank happy. And uh, then, of course, next day we went in the, just the troop leader and in our tank and we went to do a recce south of Leo uh, and we parked up a road and a, 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 a country track and we're watching all these Germans retreating going past down the road and uh, the two Frenchmen came up uh, we fired at them first but they came eventually quite they, what I didn't know they were telling the troop leader about the Germans being down the other end of the track about a platoon of them or something and I was I think it's a classic and there was me just wondering what was happening and looking through the periscope and then decided to have a pee we had plenty of wine bottles, etc., floating about in the tank. So I peed into that and corked it up. And then there was a little hatch by the turret for the operator, and I opened the hatch and pushed the bottle of wine out full of pee. And to my horror, instead of being, instead of it falling to the ground, it was. He was grabbed by a grateful hand <laughs> from the French group as a reward for giving him the information. 
Oh dear. Oh dear. Yeah, let's, let's just hope he didn't uh, sample the contents. Of it. Very good vintage. Yeah. So, so these wine bottles, um, you went into Lille the first time uh, for the first yes. recce, um, and you were mobbed by the locals. Yes. So I, I was, you know, again they were giving you lots of presents, yes, and yes. hugs and kisses. And Quite. That. Yes. But but at the same time, Lille was still occupied by the Germans. Yes, we were. Uh, the, I was having a little. I was in the absence of a corporal I was in the sticking out the the back of the turret or standing at the back with a long lead and uh, trying to you know look out for the Germans and uh, they told us that they were just you know very very close and that there would be we'd have to look out for them uh, I mean, the French told us that uh, they were passing little notes, notes to me to go and help. And uh, then that evening, of course, because it was getting dark, we cleared off and left them. And then I heard that they, afterwards, that they, uh, the ones who had f British flags flying outside that house, the Germans went in there and beat up the occupants. Yeah. Where, which, where did the troop corporal go? You said he... W was bomb happy and he, he disappeared. I don't know where he went. He obviously uh, came back. Well, I had no idea. He did come back eventually before we moved off. We just disappeared. But he, you see, he was always jumping out the slightest trouble. <laughs> in, in Tilly, I think it was, uh, we were supposed to be guarding the centre of the, the little village. And we were parked near a... a a well in the centre of the village well and uh, we're all asleep mind you and then a, a, a German tank came down we were looking down a little road a, a German tank came down the road at the end of it and fired a phosphorus shell into the Blenheim carriers and lit up the whole scene with this phosphorus shell so I immediately looked round to see whether, you know, how the corporal's reaction was reacting, and he wasn't there. He leapt out, and so I got out the tank with the driver Cliff Ford to see where he'd gone, and because uh, it was dark, and we both thought he'd fallen down, jumped out, and fallen down the well. <laughs> But that wasn't right, and eventually he just came back. Didn't say a word. Very terrible case, really. Was that quite common? You, you called it bomb-happy, but... I don't know whether it was common. Yeah. But uh, I, I know of a sergeant who uh, was admonished by an officer for uh, bailing out when his... The camouflage netting caught a light that was strapped on the back of the thing, and uh, the officer said, "If you do that next time, if you do it another time like that, you'll be sent into the I'll transfer you to the Pioneer Corps." And the sergeant said, "Could you do that, please?" Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Very kind. Yes. <laughs> um, they did. They were, you see. Ken became tank happy. Um, that's you don't get out the tank. 
uh, Wolf Taylor was found wandering about in Nijmegen with acute amnesia and went back to the P hospital, psychiatric hospital in Birmingham. The person who behaved in an absolutely exemplary style was the driver, Cliff Ford. He was uh, a Somerset man who drove for uh, the midsummer coal people, uh, a Rio speed wagon, as a, for whose in firm control the whole time. Firm control. Right. So after um, after Lille, huh? you, you mentioned Lille, you had the, the recce on the southern side, and you had this action with the the German tank, and you could see the Germans um, re re withdrawing. Was that the common trend then, that as you were pushing forward, you, you had contact with the Germans? I hadn't been on a reconnaissance before, right. and this is the only time I think we went on a reconnaissance. I, I couldn't help you there. Right. Okay. This is and of course we went up to drill after that along there. To, on the Arnhem Dune. Right. Chris, can we talk about the, the, the your the regiment's involvement in the or the troops' involvement in the uh, what was going to happen on Market Garden in yeah. in Arnhem? Well did you know much about the bigger operation, the bigger picture? Well the idea was of course to capture Arnhem and then go east from there, North Germany. Um, to uh, and and miss out the industrial part of of Germany, but it didn't work. I think that Horrocks was uh, so red was an ill man at the time, and uh, wasn't had not his grip on things. And of course Montgomery realised quite soon it was going to be a failure, so it didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, it was a terrible bog up, absolutely dreadful. Um, they landed the parrots too far from the bridge, uh, the, the sets wouldn't work, uh, they, uh, the, we uh, went up to drill about six miles to the west of Arnhem to relieve the Polish parachute brigade, which we did, and uh, the uh, but they were originally, I believe, uh, earmarked to land on the south on the bridge, but they didn't do that. They were withdrawn and went to drill for some obscure reason. And the American, I believe there was an American in charge of everything, he didn't want another flight of uh, paras to land on the south, which should have happened. Um, Browning, I think, but don't quote me, uh, and his staff were in a house and they uh, got... Um, the Germans came outside and they went up into the loft and it hid up there for four days, so they were completely out of touch with what was happening. Terrible, right? Terrible disaster. Yeah. Yes. But I remember going up that road very well. 
Hell's Highway to, uh, and we, we went up to Nijmegen first and then did a left turn and went up to Drill. Again, what was the, um, a lot's been written obviously about Market Garden and its, yes. its tactical strategic yeah. failure. Um, but the, what were the conditions like for you on, on Hell's Highway as it's become known? Was well, it as bad as, I mean, was it completely log jammed with? Well, it, I remember waiting a lot mm. uh, because it was uh, packed and uh, with uh, you know, tanks going up on this, just the one road. I remember that uh, it was pretty impossible, really. But we didn't come under fire at all. And uh, we eventually landed up at Nijmegen. The, uh, at Nijmegen, across the river, the uh, defences were captured by an American assault group. And then when the uh, an Irish guards were coming up, and uh, but of course I didn't know that. I read this later, and then the who became foreign secretary was a tank commander, and uh, they stuck on the bridge, and uh, the Americans said to him, "You know, are you going forward?" And he says, "No." He said, "Why not? I haven't had my orders." So he said, uh, "If you don't go forward, I'll shoot you," and. Uh, this bloke, what was his name, the foreign secretary, um, climbed into the tank and slammed the hatch down. And uh, eventually, next morning, the Irish downs did move off. And uh, there was a German anti-tank gun, and I think that two of the tanks were immediately hit. But that... Uh, it was a great shame, if that is true, of course, but of course the bloke denies it. But uh, if that is true, then that delay was very, very precious. Uh, well, could you know that time could have been very precious to get to Arnhem in time. Right. So you um. You understood what the the bigger plan was for for the Arnhem. More or less. Yeah. Well, once that had failed, what? Once that strategic aim had failed at uh, Arnhem. Yeah. Um, how long was it before the regiment knew what the next move was going to be? Well, there was fighting on the island afterwards. Uh, a squadron were involved with the five oh six, and. Uh, they had been involved at Elst and then um, I don't know how long we were up there but then in November of course uh, they moved down to Brunsum and uh, tried to get in that way and that's when I was wounded right. and of course the weather was amazing weather was appalling mm. absolutely appalling torrential rain and it, in, during the action at Tripsworth, uh, practically the whole of the squadron was bogged down in the mud. 
Can we talk about that that particular action? Because this this is if I got this right, this is where you were yeah. wounded. Um, so the the, re the regiment was now pushing sort of southeast, weren't they? They came south, and then they were pushing east and Trip southeast, a bit northeast, I think. Yes. What was Trip Was it a, a town or was it a village? It was a small village. Uh, the main action, of course, was the uh, 84th US Division, the Rail Splitters, I think they're called, uh, to capture Geilenkirchen. And this was uh, a little bit of action, uh, sort of covering their flanks, etc., etc., etc. Right. So as you move forward, uh, obviously the weather was, was atrocious. Yeah. Uh, you say the whole squadron was. Yes was bogged in. Um, what, what are your memories of entering the village? Well, my, uh, my memories are that uh, there was going to be a disaster. <laughs> and I took my tank suit off uh, because I knew we were going to be hit. And uh, the Worcesters were holed up at the end, of the north part of the village, running out of ammo. And we were mobile still, one of the few tanks that were mobile. And we, uh, we it was pouring the rain all night. And uh, we, in a, uh, a, we dug ourselves a trench, a foxhole. And uh, the moaning minis were going over all night. And eventually they hit the farm that we were in the front of, and that went up. And we went down into Tripstrath, did a sharp left turn, sharp right turn. I thought, this ain't going to work out very well. I took my suit off, and uh, I thought it was a, a self-propelled gun that had, uh, you know, tank that had hit us. But I've been reading a, there's a description of it in the, in a, one of the books that's recently been published, and it said that um, a young blonde German with a Panzerfaust had uh, got it, but he has got it right because there are only two tanks. But uh, nevertheless, we were hit, and uh, and that was it. So, so the fighting. Hmm? During that, the fighting during that period was intense, and you you it felt was yourself intense. Yeah. I've never known anything like it. It right. was very very bad indeed. And the moaning minis you refer to, yes, are the uh, they're, they're mine the and rocket, the, the rock, right. the, the, the 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 German rocket. I think there were eight in a battery, not quite, eight, you know, eight uh, rockets. I think it was, and they came over and made this dreadful noise, and. Uh, so you knew they were coming? <laughs> oh, yes, you had prior notice. Prior notice. Right. And you say you took your tank suit off. Yes. Um, because you felt that... Yes, it was a disaster. It was going to be horrible. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and and why, why the tank suit off, though? Was, that, did you, huh? was the tank suit seen as an... It was the suit suit was a bit bulky, and I thought I could move a bit faster with the tank suit off. Right, running. Um, so you, you, when you were hit, as you say, you don't know what hit you. 
Um, were well, you I wounded? knew what hit me because I was uh, this elderly corporal, Kingsbury, as his name was, got tangled up in his uh, his radio lead, getting out instead of just pulling the whole damn lot with him. As you could, there was a snatch plug on it, you could. He spent all has getting out, and by the time I'd got underneath the gun. Um, I was uh, lifted up my right leg on the turret ring to heave myself out and of course the tank exploded and I uh, got a, a bit of stuff through my leg and then the tank caught fire and encouraged me to get out with the flames wrecking out of my bum and then I stood on the top wondering whether I was going to uh, I was going to get down the nine foot off the top of the tank and a German patrol passing shot me in the back, pushed me off. And But, you know, Cliff again had rushed out to try, I was lying by the track, Cliff rushed me back, to, rushed out to, followed by Wolf or somebody, couldn't have been Wolf. Um, well, Cliff rushed out to pull me in, but uh, uh, they'd thrown a grenade over the top of the tank and uh, wounded him in the legs. And uh, I crawled into the house, and though the crew was the remains of the... because the uh, troop leader's tank was hit behind us. That was another thing. The troop leader's tank was parked right behind us, um, close to the building, but he was right, right behind us and uh, he couldn't have possibly, you know, instead of sort of going back and say, going on the other side of the street and giving some cover, he was parked you know, in an impossible position right behind us. And uh, Files was uh, killed in that tank, and the rest of the crew came into the house, terraced house with me, where I was. And uh, the uh, troop um, troop corporal said, um, "We'll come back to it at night time." This was at. 7.30 in the morning and they, uh, they he said I'll get these others out and get them back because we were completely surrounded you see and I lay on the bed uh, Buster helped me get on a mate of mine and I put a tourniquet from had a bit of parachute round my neck and I put that round my leg and just uh, and, it, and and Buster went out to see a, a, a infantry officer and get a bit of morphine out of him, which he did. They're little tubes with it, and I injected me with that, and I just started to lose consciousness and uh, wake up and lose consciousness, and they they got me out of the. The, 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 at night time, they got me out of the trip's wrath 
and got me into a casualty clearing station. Yeah. But even the, even getting you out must have been difficult because you were surrounded by Germans. Yes. It, obviously, yeah, literally I went, outside the house. I went outside. I was put on a stretcher. Bearers came. They put me on a on a on a, on a Bren gun carrier. Got me out, but I didn't know very much about it. Um, so as they say, for, for you at that yeah. stage, the war was over. Cause yeah. <laughs> you then obviously went back into the yeah, medical the, clearing. Yeah, yeah. of course. Uh, I'd been called in before that to say that I was being sent back with a commission. And then um, that was on the following Saturday I was going back. So I was wounded on the... It must have been about the Sunday, I think. And then uh, they came to collect me, and I found I wasn't there, so they, I was told Buster he was going back. And Buster went and said, right. that was the end of that. How did the, after you'd been hmm? evacuated, did you know how the rest of your troop continued? How, how did the, your... Yes, uh, they, of course, after Tripstrath, they ceased to exist. And in 1945, they were reformed, and uh, again, they were reformed, but within a day of being reformed, the three tanks were again destroyed. Incredible. Yeah. So, if you look at the first and last, of course, you'll see that the troop doesn't exist in 1945. Ten, think, were killed. I mean, the amount of kills got in the front there. Yes. The ten tanks, I think, were destroyed. And it was really, you know, when there was fighting, it really was tough stuff there's no question about it and the morale of course never faltered never amongst the blokes never and uh, an un unimaginable bravery amongst like from Cliff and you know from a person like Captain Richards uh, quite incredible you know. and others of course fell down on their job. But there was always somebody to uh, to uh, take over and do the job properly. Right. The, the Scotland leader was pretty marvellous, I thought. Steve Jenkins, Major Jenkins, I thought he was uh, a great guy. He, he you know, he was like something out of Dad's army. <laughs> his, his, his cuffs would be turned back and his berry would be on a little ski whiff on his hand and he'd loop around like this. <laughs> Marvellous bloke. Cool as a cucumber. A real character. A real character. Of course, his son, who was also in the regiment, this colonel, he lives near here oh. and he comes on the pilgrimage. Yes, he, uh, he uh, absolutely superb Scotland leader. Yeah. It's 
I think it's um, it's very interesting when you hear just how close this action is, and uh, you know the Germans literally outside the door, yes, lobbing grenades over the top of your burning tank, yes. Whilst at the same time, somebody's willing to step outside Absolutely. to go and find some morphine from friendly troops yeah, in, I know, yes. in the area, yes. knowing full well that he They're could have just been... just putting their life on the line. Yeah, that's, that's uh, a and like thing. Cliff did, uh, and Buster. Right. C- coming back to you, obviously you don't probably don't remember much about being evacuated, um, do you, you were flown, if I remember rightly, you were flown... To Lynham. To Lynham, which is not far from here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and then not... taken by ambulance. I was going to Leicester Chest Hospital with this bullet in my back. It's still in there, by the way. They never took it out. I just asked them to take it out one day. and yes. uh, But they stopped off on Derby, uh, Derby City on the way up and uh, an orderly took my um, uh, bloke took my plaster off by mistake and of course they found I had gangrene and uh, so they treated that so I never went to Leicester I stayed at Derby <coughs> a very fortunate very fortunate because but penicillin had just been invented about two or three years before so and uh, so that did the trick right. otherwise i had been dead so so you you made a recovery yeah. in time obviously because yes. you were very seriously <coughs> ill yeah, yeah i was state. dangerously ill dangerously ill yeah um when how did the process work when did you know that you were going to be formally discharged I, from the uh, army I don't really know, to be quite frank. Um, I remember I was at Derby City and uh, I was discharged from there, I think. And uh, I remember Sergeant Major saying, it was, you're, you're being discharged. And uh, he said, and he gave the, the few chaps who were there a little lecture on don't expect any special treatment. You'll be on your own, which was good advice. And uh, I went back home. Did you find it easy to settle? Obviously, having been evacuated and the war's finished, did you find the process of getting back into some form of normality easy or difficult? Well, um, I didn't do anything. I. Uh, my sister with her baby and her husband who had been wounded in Monte Cassino was with my, staying with my parents and I was quite happy to hang around not doing anything and then my sister said to me, you know you ought to try and get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Good advice. And so I did something about it, I went to uh, Russell Square, I think, where there was a, a, a rehabilitation centre, and uh, signed up for the College of Estate Management uh, to do a, a course in uh, uh, surveying. Did that, but the um, I, I wasn't too concerned. But I, I was getting a small pension. 
and uh, I was quite happy we were not doing anything. <laughs> so the impact on your wider family, you, you, you mentioned earlier that your brother was in the... In the uh, fifth tank. Fifth tanks. How did he fare? Well, I said he was killed. He was, he, in, yes. uh, he was killed in uh, south of Bremen, oh. at Richtons. I think he'd just been four days, he'd been, previously he'd been transferred to a recce troop and they'd just got rid of 22 SS and two survived and he got out of his, uh, his armoured car to uh, interrogate them and they shot him. Uh, an infantry bloke was telling me sometime, you know, after my retirement, after I got out, that they would have a small pistol uh, on a cord round the back of their, around uh, their neck, hanging down their back, and when they had their hands up, uh, quietly pull it out, and then distract the. Uh, uh, person taking them prisoner and then shoot them straight in the face. Right, that's terrible. Mm. Yeah. That's what I think happened to him. Right. Um, so, obviously you did eventually get into employment and back to some form of normality. Yes. Um, many, many years later you decided to write your, yes. your memoirs in yes. a book. Well, uh, not many years later. Um, I wrote it as a, a book of fiction, uh, first of all, and then and thought I'd put it away, and then I decided that it wasn't the thing to do and, and did it as fact. Right. And the book, which I have a copy here, a soldier's, yes. uh, sorry, A Trooper's Tale, yeah. um, which I've read a couple of times, it's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah, good, thank read. you very much. No, I, I, I yeah. found it so, so interesting um, for somebody who hasn't been involved in that sort yes, of thing. Yes, yes. Um, very, very, very interesting read. Um, and of course, apart from writing your your book, your memories of that that time, yes. you've also involved with the association um, in putting memorials. Yes, did you find that was a, a very deeply personal thing that you wanted to um, make sure the memorials were were put in place? Yes, it was the main thing. But I thought that uh, I didn't want to see the four seven being put on the back burner. Um, events had taken over, the, the regiment disappeared, I thought it would be swallowed up in the amalgamation, which, were, you know, there's been a lot of sympathy for it from headquarters, and so that was a fear that's never been materialised, uh, mm. given great support and all this business. So, But uh, there, there was a question of... Uh, when we met up for the first time for the dedication, uh, that was Sergeant Rudd again, uh, said, you know, we ought to hang together because there are quite a few uh, ORs then, they've all gone now. Yes. And so I said, yes, it'd be a good idea. I said, Ken, I said, you're going to run it. He said, no, you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nothing that'll be a delegation. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but it's great that you've done that as well, and well, I, I believe you still go on the, as part of the Cruelly Club. Yeah, well, that's gone. Gone that is, because yeah. there were no people left. Right, and uh, I, you know, you see, there's 
quite a nice little trust fund and it's now administered by three trustees. I don't know whether you ought to record this, but I was, and that I was personally getting severely worried about our responsibility. Dorks, I'll call him Dorks, because he ain't a friend of mine, suggested I hand over the club funds to the association and he'd ring fence it. I said, I certainly wouldn't do that. And uh, then there was, I could never get out of the association any sort of questions that I asked about insurance. I couldn't get that sorted out. I couldn't get... I thought if anything happens on that site of where the memorial is, then and somebody sued for a slippery path or something like that, who would be responsible? Would it the trustees? Also, it appears to me that the memorial needs a bit of tender loving care and that doesn't seem to be forthcoming. Mm. It needs something, it needs some expert opinion to say what's going to happen to it because I've been up there in before the June and the condition has been deplorable with thick weeds going through the paving and uh, litter scattered about, although round the memorial the commune do keep it litter free and the hedges cut, the grass cut, but in the immediate environment of the, 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 the memorial, it's quite, and I called her, went over to the on that visit, went over to the uh, Pompadours, you know, the fire people opposite, and asked him to come over and have a look. He thought I'd got a puncture in my bike because I was on my bike. But he came over and I pointed, he said, yes, we'll clear it up because I tried to pull the stuff out and couldn't. He said, it'd be all right on the 6th of June, but it's not good enough. No. Uh, during the year, it should be in good condition. The association, in the, their attitude towards it, are quite correct, I think, in that they don't want to know about it. I'm sure of that, and that has been confirmed in certain respects. I won't go into that. But, you see, there were these officers who launched the project without very much liaison with the association or with the regiment at the time. I don't think they want to know about it. Mm. It's, it's always um, a difficult area, I believe. Yes, um, yes, I sympathise. I'm not being very yes. uh, censorious about it. I think that it's a very difficult area. And of course, Alan is absolutely marvellous in the way he... Uh, helps yes right but uh, 
Dorks hasn't behaved very well either. We're stinking letter as well. Right. Well, Cecil, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to come into your house today and interview you uh, for the Royal Dragoon Guard Oral History Project. Um, I know that people listening to your interview in the future will find it immensely interesting um, to to hear your your personal views of the war, the preparation for Normandy, and also your personal uh, views as you went forward through that campaign, right up to the time, uh, unfortunately, when you were when you were injured. Um, so again, thank you very much for for today. Thank you.